Welcome to U.S. History Repeated, the podcast that reviews what you should have learned in high school history class. Today we're going to discuss the primary election process in regards to the general election and some local primaries. As always, we have our resident U.S. history buff, Jeannie Zanakis. Jeannie, take it away. All right, primary elections. These help to narrow down the pool of candidates for a political party. Presidential candidates are selected at their respective party's convention. The number of delegates that each state has, along with delegates from American territories, is derived from the state's share of the total Democratic or Republican popular vote in the last presidential election, as well as the proportion of the electoral college vote. So again, when you think your vote doesn't matter, here it is again, staring you right in the face. Your vote counts. It matters for multiple reasons. Okay, this sounds really, really confusing, and we're going to have to figure out an easier way to explain this. If you go to thegreenpapers.com, they actually do a decent job of explaining where the pledged versus unpledged delegates come from. So the pledged base is determined by the presidential vote in 2008, 2012, 2016, and the electoral vote allocation based off of the 2010 census. Um, then there's an unpledged category, which is really determined by if there is a Democratic governor in a state. And they also include the mayor of District of Columbia, so the mayor of D.C., U.S. House members, Democratic U.S. senators, and the statehood senators of D.C., since D.C. isn't, you know, quote-unquote a state, but this is how DNC gets there. This is how Washington, D.C., rather, gets there their allocation and their voices heard. So you always hear like taxation without representation, but they, they do allocate for some representation there in DC. And then you also have like the DNC members and the distinguished party leaders, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But these all making up the unpledged amount. It still sounds really confusing. Maybe we should get a, um, an example. Can you give us an example? We're here in New York. Maybe you give us an example of, of how the delegate count is determined here in New York for each party. Sure. So if you go to thegreenpapers.com, and, and this has been around since 1999, and they really do a great job of showing all the data and all the information that you need to understand it. There's a lot of math involved. So if, you know, we're from New York. So if you click on New York, this chart will pop up on thegreenpapers.com, and it will show you the type of primary that the state had, uh, the delegate binding for New York, it's a winner-take-all system. And so for the New York Republican delegate count, there are 94 total delegates, 10 at large. The 10 comes from five delegates given for each senator. There are two senators per state. That's where you get that base number of 10 from. 81 comes from the 27 congressional districts. Three delegates are given per congressional district. Three times 27 is 81. And then three delegates for the party leaders. In the same respect, on the same website, if you look at the Democratic number of delegates, the DNC has, let me just explain, has a greater number of delegates based on what that party has chosen to, to use, okay? So for the New York Democrat delegates, there are 324 total delegate votes. 184 
district votes, 61 at large, 29 pledged. Again, as Jim explained, that's based off the last three presidential election results and the 2010 census. And then you have 50 unpledged delegates, and that comes from those bonus categories that you'll see in the larger chart. So if you are curious as to how many delegates your state has, the impact of previous presidential elections on the primary delegate count, thegreenpapers.com is a great place for you to start to get some information from. Now there are different types of primary elections. You have a closed primary. In these types of primaries, only individuals who are registered to vote as either a Democrat or Republican can vote in the political party's primary election. Then you have an open primary. You don't need to be registered in a particular political party. You can only vote for one candidate or party and you can declare party affiliation on election day. About 17 states have open primaries. Some have different regulations. It's always best to find out what your state's rules and regulations are prior to primary election day. And then you have a semi-open primary. These are also known as mixed primaries. Voters registered as independents can vote in a primary for one party or candidate. Now. Why do primaries matter? Candidates who have success early on get more media attention. This leads to more name recognition among the general public and more campaign donations. A great example of this would be Donald Trump in the 2016 presidential election. He didn't have to spend as much as his you know, colleagues were, I guess, because he would say something outlandish he would get all of this media coverage and it was free press free airtime for him and he would get all of this name recognition so the more success you have early on the more people know you states such as Iowa and New Hampshire have early primary dates these states have a small number of electoral college votes yet candidates spend a great deal of time and money there these early primary dates are testing grounds for presidential hopefuls. Some candidates even suspending campaigns after them when it appears they won't seem likely to win future primaries in other states. So you would think a state like Iowa wouldn't have the impact that it does. And it may not continue to have the impact that it has had because of what happened this year in the Iowa primary, where the caucus. Right. The, that's the type of primary Iowa has. Mm -hmm. So the Iowa has a caucus. The Democrat and Republican caucus in Iowa differs. The Democratic caucus in Iowa, those involved vote according to precinct and sit according to which candidate they support or if they are undecided. Now, the picture you should kind of have in your head right now is like a high school pep rally. Who's wearing whose colors, who's supporting which candidate. You're having people with signs and chart paper. You know, this is the kind of image that you're seeing. A debate is held where individuals try to persuade others to vote for their candidate. The candidates are narrowed down based on popularity, and the Democrats allow for a realignment process. And so what this means is that voters who supported candidates that had less than 15% of the vote 
can choose a different candidate to support that is more likely to win. So they're taking their first choice, and then they're, if their candidate doesn't get a good score, then they walk somewhere else, and they yeah. they kind of see where they get counted in to try to... Yeah, you you're going to sit on a different section of the bench and maybe flip your sign over to somebody else, and that's what you're going to choose to do. So it's like your team getting knocked out of the playoffs, and then you have a new favorite. Yeah. Yeah. Where the Republican caucus in Iowa differs is that they don't allow for a realignment process. There is no minimum viability for a candidate. Now, if you followed the news in regards to the Iowa caucus, uh, the Iowa caucus, you know that there were a number of issues. It took weeks to learn the results. The state's Democratic Party chair resigned. There were issues with the new app that was developed to count the score for each candidate, if you will. Uh, there was an issue with downloading the app, an issue with using the app to report the results. There was uh, the issue of a poorly staffed call center, which led to people waiting on hold for hours or even resorting to texting in the results. South Carolina follows the New Hampshire primary. And its results are used to anticipate how candidates will do in other southern states. So if you are a presidential hopeful, you're using these states as testing grounds. Can you be the candidate? Some larger states have moved up the dates of their primary so as to minimize the impact that smaller states have on the general election. The major primary date is Super Tuesday. It is considered sink or swim for candidates. 14 states held their primaries on the main Super Tuesday this primary election year. It's typically either held in February or March before the presidential election. It consisted of mostly southern states, and the Super Tuesday this election year was on March 3, 2020. California traditionally holds its primary later in the spring, but this year was included in Super Tuesday. Depending on the primary schedule, there can be more than one Super Tuesday. This primary season had about two or three of those. By the time of the political party convention, that candidate has already been determined, but that really wasn't always the case. The general election begins after both the DNC and RNC. The DNC stands for the Democratic National Convention, and the RNC stands for the Republican National Convention. There are some important terms to know in order to better understand this process. So some of the terms that you might hear are pledge delegates, super delegates. A pledged delegate is a delegate vote based on the results of a primary or caucus. Super delegates are unpledged. They tend to be party insiders. They can decide who the nominee will be. They tend to want somebody with national appeal. Considerations of that include the amount of money in the campaign, their ability to raise more money and to attract big donors. As you'll see in our next podcast, it costs a lot of money to run for president. It is insane how much money is spent. The DNC was originally supposed to be held July 13th and 16th in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, you know, primaries are confusing. Throw in a global pandemic, 
and they're even more confusing. Due to the coronavirus, it was changed to August 17th to the 20th this year. This year. DNC is planning a mostly virtual convention. Um, just with the way things are with this virus, you don't want to have so many people in such a, in a, in a closed-off space. Now, according to 270twin.com, which is a great resource, um, it not only has information about the primary election. You know, as a teacher, I used it a ton in class to show my students just how election results worked for the Electoral College, for the popular vote. But according to 270towin.com, it is estimated that there will be, for the DNC, around 4,750 delegates. The majority of those delegates are pledged, uh, a little over 3,900, 3,979, according to 270towin.com, and almost 800 superdelegates. Now, because of what happened in the 2016 presidential election, in regards to candidates Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders and the impact that the superdelegates had, the DNC changed the rules. The new rule surrounding superdelegates this year is that superdelegates will only be allowed to vote for a nominee in the first round if that candidate has enough votes from the pledged delegates alone to win. And so that was a very important change. You know, had that rule been in place, Bernie Sanders might have gotten that nomination. The RNC was originally supposed to be held in Charlotte. Concerns over social distancing needs and health requirements led to a change in location. Day one of the convention will be held in Charlotte. And the remaining events and speeches were supposed to take place in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, the GOP was forced to make the change due to President Trump's desire to accept his party's nomination in front of a large crowd. Um, this can no longer be the case in Jacksonville. This all changed yesterday. On Thursday, July 23rd, President Trump pulled the plug essentially on Jacksonville. With Florida being one of the epicenters of the pandemic, this was a necessary step. Um, and so what it's going to look like is it's probably going to be more of a virtual convention. But this is ongoing information. You know, this is th these are changes that just happened yesterday. Um, what they did announce is that the, tw uh, the 2016 platform will remain in effect. So they're not changing the party's platform. And based on tradition, because there is a Republican president, the Republican convention uh, will be held after the DNC. So, for example, if there was a Democratic president, the DNC will be held after the RNC's convention. The purpose of nominating conventions, why do we have these? Why do we care? Why didn't we just cancel these all together considering the climate right now? At one point in history, it was to select the vice president and presidential nominees for a political party. Since 1980, we know going into the conventions who those nominees will be. Today, the conventions act as a grand stage for candidates to basically sell themselves and their platform to the American public. Speeches are made by rising stars within each party. These individuals 
you know, tend to signal the future of who could potentially be a future candidate. You know, when Barack Obama gave his speech at the convention uh, prior to, and he was an unknown senator, it catapulted him to the national stage. You know, think of it as one big advertisement, drawing in viewers, drawing in donors across the country and the world, essentially, for multiple days. You know, not only are we interested in which individual is going to um, be the party's candidate, but the world is. Okay, so campaign primaries, we um, pretty dry subject, but we, we tried to give examples where we could. The, um, we showed the math as it pertained to New York, and, you know, there are plenty of resources out there. We mentioned a few in this podcast. Next time we, we get together, we're going to have a conversation on campaign financing. As, as Gina mentioned earlier, we want to um, follow the money, as they say. You see what candidates beholden to who and why, and uh, join us next time.